the Allies have always been incredibly clear that the moment that Axis surrender and give up, the bombing will stop. You, you can only do what you can do with weapons you can do. And, and the alternative to that is creating vast divisions of infantry, which then get slaughtered. And you have a repeat of 1914-18. So, you know, this is an age of total war, you know, as it was, you know, as, as the Hundred Years' War was, as the Thirty Years' War was. You, you know, when you have very violent wars, which involve multiple nations, lots of civilians get killed. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Today I welcome James Holland onto the show, Mr. World War II. There's nothing this man doesn't know about the conflict. He's written more than 20 books of non-fiction and fiction and he runs the hugely successful We Have Ways podcast and festival and the Chalk Valley History Festival. And his latest book is an illustrated history of the Second World War. And those illustrations are quite wonderful, and they took me right back to my youth of Commando, Warlord, and Victory comics. Now, we're not going to cover every single battle and event of the war in a chat of around 40 minutes, so I thought, why not focus on two significant areas? One which took place in May 1940, so we're at the anniversary, and that is, of course, Dunkirk. The other is the bombing campaign, which is something that James gives an impassioned defence of, as you heard at the top there. Coming up for Patreon members, and links are in the show notes if you want to know more, the Film Club continues with, yes it's May, so it's Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's 2017 masterpiece starring Kenneth Branagh, Tom Hardy and Mark Rylance. I chat with the acclaimed director Tim Hewitt as usual. Coming up next week, it'll be the Napoleonic Wars as I welcome a fellow podcaster on for a chat. Please do rate and review, I'd be hugely grateful. And check out the Patreon, plenty of opportunity for you listeners to get more involved in the podcast. But until then, I'll hand you over to me talking with James Holland on the Second World War. James Holland, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me on. And we're going to be talking about your, this is your latest book. And I've got to say, it's this glorious stuff. It's the Second World War and Illustrated History. And it's basically, I've been reading through it, and it's one giant commando comic, basically. That's basically the idea. Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of the Ladybird Bird version of Alfred the Great and Nelson blended with the commando comics. Yeah. And the illustrations by Keith Burns, I mean, he's obviously... We need to talk about him, don't we? <laughs> he's absolutely genius. He's he's the most lovely guy. He's um he's an Irishman and and he's he's very sort of self-effacing uh, and yet he has this sort of just spectacular talent. And I think people are always sort of slightly in awe of people that can do amazing things brilliantly, whether it be kind of strip down an engine or just perfectly draw I don't know a VLR Liberator attacking a U-boat in the in the Atlantic and just know what to do. I mean, because he doesn't really have that many photographic references. He just he just knows it. So he can just freehand just draw you a Spitfire in a dogfight with a Messerschmitt, uh, any problem whatsoever. It's, it's just absolutely remarkable. That is that is amazing. And, and it's funny you mentioned the aircraft because I, I don't know. They're always, for some strange reason, I, I, I just love the illustrations of, of aircraft probably more than any other piece of kit. Yeah, and- I, I think I do too, which is probably why there's so many. And I think, that it, I, I think to be fair, that probably reflects Keith's own interest as well. You know, we just got as many aircraft in as we possibly could. Uh, there's a glorious picture of a of a of a twizzling P fifty one in the middle of it, which I particularly like. And and you know, we've got we've got rocket firing typhoons and and all sorts. And 
you know, Battle of Medway and it's just it's fantastic i mean it really, it i also really, love that picture of the kitty hawk the shark squadron kitty hawk in the western desert as well it's just it's well and there, there's a german aircraft that i didn't even know about that was used in night fighting where it, they would they would fire their cannon from below oh yeah you wouldn't even know what was going on dragon music yeah um yes yeah well they had yes yeah, so they had what they did they put these sort of 30 millimeter cannons on the kind of top of the fuselage and just sort of point it upwards so what you do is you'd you'd home in on a on an on a stray Lancaster or a or a Halifax or whatever, and you fly underneath it, and the one bit that's not protected in the Halifax or the or the Lancaster was underneath it, bizarrely, because no one's going to really be firing above. So they have the, they have the sort of dorsal turret on the top of the fuselage, which makes no sense whatsoever. But they have absolutely nothing underneath. So you go up with your 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 Schrager music and you your your cannon pointing upwards, and you just fire, and it you know rips the piece you know the Lancaster to pieces, frankly. Yeah, nasty stuff, nasty Very stuff. Very nasty stuff, yeah. And I was reading in the PR that it was mentioning that the book was five years in the making. Is that because it, it takes time to, to draw these incredible... Yeah, pictures? I can't remember how many pictures there are, but there's hundreds of pictures. And and yeah, it takes me quite a long time to write it, but it didn't take that long, really, in the big scheme of things. It's it's the time it takes Keith to do all those individual colour, full colour pictures, I think, is... is it's it's the limiting factor constraining factor so yeah that's taken a little bit of a while but uh, you know it looks very handsome i mean you know it's always a frustration as a writer because you always want to write more and you know you're missing out so much and and you know what happened to the balkans for example you know what happened to bulgaria in the war or there's barely a mention of the brazilians or there's so much that's just you just simply can't put in so the, the, the idea of it was to do it with a slight british bias but but looking at it from the perspective of the major competence rather than the kind of junior competence, I suppose, is is is, is the overall thing. But the bottom line is, you know, there's a huge amount that's left out. But but this is supposed to give anyone who wants to know a kind of overview of the main events, the main battles, how it all sprung out, and 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 sort of roughly chronological. Well, we're speaking in May, and so I wanted to because the 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 book obviously begins at the beginning and yeah. we're around about the time where the phony war is over and the germans are marching quickly into france via belgium i'm really enjoying reading this part because it's such a what i'm fascinated by is is that the french army which i i guess i kind of knew but hadn't appreciated quite as much as had these fantastic tanks that the germans probably didn't have they had sort of it was it the panzer four have i got well they did have the panzer four but they had them in very very small numbers they also had the panzer three but also in very small numbers and also you know the panzer three and panzer four became sort of increasingly upgunned as the war progressed but what they had more than anything else uh was panzer ones and panzer twos and panzer ones were just equipped machine guns they're unbelievably puny and uh, a panzer one was about six foot high so you know <laughs> i would stand above it put it that way and you know they're, they're just unbelievably pathetic and that was the vast majority of their tank their panzer force and you know the, the germans you know they they talked good talk and they they projected kind of sort of you know sort of huge great mechanized moloch that they were and and that's what they put on the newsreels and it, and it's just a sort of bit of a myth really i mean they're very incredibly under mechanized vast majority of the army was marching on its own two feet or using horses i mean they used way more horses in the second world war than they did in the first and it's just this idea that they're sort of you know 100 mechanized and sort of all stukas and all panzers blaze, blazing and all the rest of it it's just something of a myth what, what they were very good at was on comms so they were they're very well 
equipped with radio so they can all communicate with one another. And they're very good at harnessing, particularly in, particularly in the spearhead, motorized infantry with panzers, of course, but also artillery and anti-tank guns and all the rest of it. So that was what you would call a sort of all arms formation. And that was the kind of USP about the Panzer Division. The Panzer Division isn't a division that's stuffed full of a, a single unit stuffed full of tanks. It's a it's a it's an all arms operation which includes tanks. But the key point is that they could communicate properly with each other. Whereas the French had these, you know, Samoas and and, and Charbies, which are these sort of huge tanks with very thick armor and big guns. But they're very slow and plodding. And the, the key thing was that they weren't able to communicate with one another. And and so the kind of key moment really that sort of seals the fate of the French army is on the 15th of May 1940, when the first armored division, the French first armored division, which is, you know, very much the kind of sort of core delete of the um of the French army, is basically completely destroyed. And even though it's coming up against the 7th Armoured Division, Panzer Division, and the 5th Panzer Division, which are inferior in terms of armament, they still lose. And you kind of think, well, how can that be? Well, what basically happens is the little panzers sort of run up towards the the, the Charbies and the Samoas, effectively kind of stick their tongues out at them, you know, say, catch me if you can, and then sort of scuttle back into the woods. The Charbies and, and the Samoas sort of slowly, stiffly kind of veer off the road and chung, 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 sort of head, head towards, towards the wood where a waiting screen of very powerful anti-tank guns is waiting for them and they're sort of all blown to bits. And, and that's how it happens. And and the, the reason that's able to happen is because the people in the tanks who are sticking their tongues out at the, uh, uh, in the panzers that are sticking their tongues out at the Germans are then able to communicate with the anti-tank gun screen and go, okay, they're coming, we've lured them into the trap we're coming for you now, and then it's over to you, chaps. And and you know, it's just the French don't have that. They don't have that level of communication. They don't have radios. They don't, you know, all sort of sign language and semaphores and all that kind of stuff. And you know, dispatch riders. And one of the factors, the big problem is, is that the French is that they just they just can't communicate quickly. So. You know, they're dependent on field telephones and the telephone network, which is destroyed by Stukas, bombs and people cutting wires and all the rest of it. So then they're dependent on dispatch riders. And because they're very, very top heavy in their structure, they've got the overall army, then they've got army groups, then they've got armies, then they've got corps, then they've got divisions. At every single level, this is repeated. And so if you want to send an order from the Chateau de Vincennes at the edge of Paris down to your army group, which then goes to your army, which then goes to your corps, which then goes to your divisions... Every single person's got to do the same thing. But if all the telephones are cut, they've all got to be sent out by dispatch riders. The dispatch riders are then fighting against, you know, Germans dominating the skies, plus roads which are kind of gridlocked with refugees. So they don't get through. And so then you send another one out at kind of, you know, having sent one dispatch rider at six in the morning, and then send another one out at nine at night. And he eventually comes back at two the following morning, by which time the whole situation has changed. And this is being repeated all the way down the chain. So basically what happens is... is the German army is just sort of stuck. It, it just can't move. And so the Germans are able to take them off in isolation, in penny packets, rather than as a sort of, as a whole, which would have been completely impregnable. Uh, and so it really, the, the Blitzkrieg is all about speed of operation and about, about who can communicate better, rather than who's got the biggest gun. And the British, meanwhile, d- don't make up a huge amount at all, do they? But they're uh, Tiny, no. similar problem, problems for them. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, again, they haven't got as many radios as, as they should have. It's a lesson they learn very, very quickly. Um, but yeah, it's, the, the problem is they can't communicate. And it's the same problem in the air. You know, in, it, when it comes to Britain, Britain's got an air defence system, which is 
you know, can pick up enemy aircraft coming and communicate very quickly. And there's ground controllers talking to the to the people in the air and all the rest of it. So you can you can make sure that you're not on the ground when the Germans come a calling at your airfield. And, and so you don't get destroyed on the ground. Well, in France, there's none of that. There's no radar system. There's no air defense system. So, you know, you've basically just got to take off and hope you bump into some Luftwaffe and hope that you're not on the ground when the Luftwaffe turn up over whatever airfield it is that they're attacking at the time they're attacking. And of course, it doesn't really work because there's no coordination. There's no concentration of force. Um, they repeatedly are on the ground when the Germans come a calling. And, and so they get again, they get destroyed just every bit as piecemeal as, as they do on the ground for exactly the same reasons, an inability to communicate properly. You know, so until you sort that out, you're, you're in big trouble. But fortunately, Britain has got an air defence system. So when Germany comes to attacking Britain in the summer of 1940, it thinks it's going to have an, an easy time of it. It's going to be a repeat of France, but it isn't because they're coming up against a proper air defence system, which has been probably worked out. And so the RAF know when they're coming. They can prepare for it. They can attack them at their own advantage. Um, they can make sure they're not on the ground when the, when, when the Luftwaffe try and bomb their airfield, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so the, the, the ball is, you know, the, the tables are completely reversed, effectively. Yeah, it's 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 great reading about that in the in the book, really, because you know it shows the RAF and the Navy are the, are the two services that are really, well, they're they're tip top, and and the Navy the, is absolutely tip top, yeah, right. Uh, but the shock, I was because I was reading reading it, thinking the shock in the in the government, the cabinet, but even even people on the street seeing the army just being crushed, the French and British army crushed within a few days. I mean, the the feeling in Britain. Well, I mean, just 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 take take the sort of massive sort of speculation misinformation that was coming through in the early days of the Ukraine Russian war, for example. You know, everyone was looking at algorithms. You're just looking at numbers and sort of pictures of how who's got the most tanks, army, jets, etc., rockets in the times against you know what Ukraine's got. And you think it's going to be a walkover, don't you? You know, so so so, and and. To start off with, you know, this Russian paratroopers and the airfield outside Kiev and all the rest of it, you just think, oh, my God, they're absolutely toast. And then they're not. So I think it's really, I think what one has to understand is, is that, that May 1940 is just such a shock. It's just It just goes against the grid of what everyone thinks is likely to happen. You know, this is, this is just totally unexpected. And so if a large number of people in Britain in, in you know, by end of May, beginning of June 1940, are sort of running around like headless chickens. It's it's sort of understandable. And this is where the whole invasion scare comes from. I mean, you know, anyone with a rational, rational mind would be able to kind of work out that actually the Germans don't have the transportation to kind of get them across the channel. They don't have transportation to, to, to drop paratroopers. They don't have the airfields close to the Channel Coast. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the means. Um, they're coming up against a fully coordinated air defence system. They're coming up against the world's largest navy. You know, they just don't have a hope in hell. But, it was but, never going to happen. Never going to happen. I mean, yes. But 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 you're not thinking that because you're just thinking we never thought the French army could possibly fail either. And that, look what's happened. So so it, it it stops you from thinking clearly. I think that's that's the point. And. You know, the the whole threat of invasion over the summer of 1940 seems a very real one, you know, for to an awful lot of people for a lot of the time. You know, decades later, we can kind of look at it with a kind of dispassionate view and, and say very calmly, well, of course, it would never have happened, uh, which it wouldn't. But but it's it's about kind of understanding what it was like at the time, I think. And then the halt order that Hitler backs up and so the German divisions don't advance onto Dunkirk. Yeah. Now, I, I've heard you speak about this before, and I'm fascinated by this, is that that seems to be the moment where 
and um, I appreciate another five years to go, but that's where Germany loses the war. Well, maybe. I mean, it's hard to see how the bulk of the BEF and a further 100,000 French or whatever it is would have escaped Dunkirk had the Holt Order not been put in place. So the Holt Order, just so that people who don't understand it, is 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 basically on the 24th of, of, of May, there is a concern that the panzer divisions are getting too far ahead of the infantry divisions and that they and they're, they're getting attrited a little bit they're going kind to of getting you know they're, they're losing numbers and they need to just pause to kind of take a deep breath wait for the infantry to catch up and then renew their assault and, and for those who are actually at the at the spearhead this is a disaster because they know that they've got the whole thing sewn up and they can push on and close the gap around the retreating british army who are kind of falling back to dunkirk at this point and close that close that back door and really, this is about this is about showing who's boss. You know, there's all sorts of reasons people have speculated why Hitler issues this order. Basically, what happens is is, is von Kleist, who is the, the the Panzer Group commander within Army Group A, which is a group of armies, he's the one who's worried about it. But that's because he's hundreds of miles behind the the spearheads. And he he says to von Rundstedt, who is the commander of Army Group A, I mean, I'm a bit worried about this. And von Rundstedt agrees, but but von Holder, who is the um, chief of staff of the army, recognizes that this is a golden opportunity to strike and and absolutely kind of close that back door to, for for the British at Dunkirk, and so countermands it and moves the Panzer armies out of control of Army Group A into Army Group B, who are arriving from the from the north, and. Hitler turns up and says, oh, how are your panzers getting on? And von Rundstedt says, well, I don't know my Führer because um, they're no longer under my command. They're in they're in command of Army Group B. And Hitler goes, what? How dare anyone make such a huge decision without telling me, um, without warning me, and then countermands it. And, and this is about, you know, how dare how someone in the army kind of do something of such great magnitude without consulting me first. And he's paranoid about his generals, isn't he? Yeah, he hates them. And, you know, because he's a, you know, he's an upstart and they're all kind of aristocratic kind of Prussian types. And, and you know, he instinctively dislikes them. And 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 so he does it out of out of spite, basically. And as a result of that, they they don't get moving again until the morning of the I think it's the 28th. By the, the, the countermander is is or maybe it's the 27th. I can't remember what day it is precisely. But but the point is, is it gives them a, a big enough gap for the BEF to kind of create a bridgehead around 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 Dunkirk get back and it unquestionably saves them and, and what enables 338,000 allied troops to escape back across the channel is the fact that there has been this pause in the assault by the but by, by the panzer group and um uh, as a result of direct result of, of hitler's halt order and so it's just a crazy thing and and various people have speculated as to why this why this happened but but uh, you know you just don't need to kind of speculate about him wanting to give britain a chance or anything like that it's, it's absolutely nonsense it's just it was purely a gut reaction to discovering that a big decision had been made on his watch without confronting him for, you know, without consulting him first. And so his knee-jerk reaction is just countermand it and forget about it. And so do you, so if the BEF hadn't been saved, so he'd dealt with the British Army, basically. Yeah. The Germans had dealt with the British Army in May 1940, then that would mean that Britain's knocked out of the war? 
Well, I don't, you know, you, I, I don't know, because that's a what if. And you like what ifs, by the way. Uh, no, I, don't, I don't mind what ifs, as long as, <laughs> as everyone knows that they are a what if. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we don't know what happened. All I'm saying, all I would say is that the closest I think Britain comes to losing the war is Monday, the 27th of May. Uh, and that's because of a split in the war cabinet. And although the wide, wider cabinet has about sort of 30 people in it, it's a war cabinet that's making the, the, the key decisions. And that's five men at that point. So as Churchill, he's only been in, in power on the 27th of, um, of, of, of May for 17 days, so a little over two and a half weeks. And Halifax, who is without question the most respected politician in, in the country, he's former Viceroy of India, Foreign Secretary, you know, seen as a very safe pair of hands, very kind of, you know, calm, measured, all the rest of it in a way that Churchill wasn't at that stage. Then you've got Neville Chamberlain, who's the former Prime Minister. And then you've got um, Clement Attlee and Arthur Greenwood, who are both Labour and don't really count because they're kind of new boys and they don't have the kind of weight of authority. So really, it's a kind of freeway thing between Halifax, Chamberlain and... Churchill and Chamberlain is and and Halifax are quite tight. You know they're good mates. They've, they've been colleagues and friends for a long time. And Halifax says, you know, I think we should think about opening peace negotiations through um, uh, Bastanini, who is the um, Italian ambassador to to Britain, and through Mussolini to Germany. And Churchill says, no, you can't possibly do that. The moment you do that, you sort of open the door ajar, it slams wide open, and just and and Halifax loses his temper, and. Uh, threatens to resign now had he resigned that would have put church in a very very difficult position i think you know i think that would have almost certainly brought down the the government you know at a time where there's a major crisis going on as it turns out chamberlain sides with 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 churchill and churchill is able to persuade halifax not to resign and you know a couple of days later you know on 28th he he churchill gives a talk to the wider government wider cabinet and says, you know, we must never surrender, we mustn't even think about it. Everyone says hurrah. And, you know, and, and and Halifax's little threat about peace feelers and all the rest of it is completely kicked into touch. And that's the end of the matter. But had the BEF already been destroyed, I think it would have been a very different kettle of fish. And so we would have then sued for peace and then we'd have been stuffed. No, Germany's not going to occupy us, but we'd have been a vassal state and and you know it would have been a bit like Vichy and all the rest of it. And we'd had to give up loads of territory and it doesn't bear we'd, have, we'd, we'd have probably had Mosley in power or, or certainly a, um, a, a kind of very right wing, you know. Yeah, and Edward the, the, the Eighth back. Yeah, yeah, all that, all that, probably. Mm. I mean, again, it's a what if, but but th those are the stakes. But because Dunkirk happens and it and it's a, and the miracle and and you know the BEF is saved. You know, it, it it gives Britain a chance to fight another day and and use its its strength, which is its island status, its its air force, its its burgeoning air force and its navy, and that is able to kind of see off any further German threat because Germans German power is all about land power. It's about land power and harnessing, um, and harnessing air power, but but air power predominantly in a in a in a tactical role, a, a kind of ground support role rather than a than a sort of bomber force. Well, yeah, and and so you've got a huge section on 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 the bomber war in in the mm. book, which which I've been reading through again today. It's fascinating to read how it's so kind of evolved, didn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, but, but I mean, all nations involved suddenly, you know, before the war, you could see there was this sort of exponential rise in in the development of air power. And, you know, big thinkers were, were writing about this, sort of, you know, Julio um, Duhay and stuff like that, people like the Italian thinkers and stuff. 
Um, there were a whole raft of people in America who called the bomber men who were also kind of convinced that this was going to be the way forward. So a lot of, you know, Britain, America, Germany, you know, and to an extent France as well, you know, all putting a lot of emphasis on air power in the 1930s. You know, Germany was ahead of the head of the ball, uh, which is why it has more in 1939, 1940 than anybody else. But but air power is absolutely the center of Britain's war plan, not least because they see it as a means of using sort of steel, not flesh. This idea that, you you know, you don't want to have another generation slaughtered on the Western Front like they did in 1914 to 1918. So the idea is you're using mechanization and power and global reach and, and modernity to do a lot of the hard yards machinery, to do a lot of the hard yards for you rather than risking you know the lives of young men and that doesn't preclude using young men of course and and the very machines you're talking about have to be managed and manhandled by young men but 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 fewer of them uh, and that's why britain is able to get through the war with an army of only kind of 55 divisions for example you know it's because it's it's not because it's not pulling its weight it's because it doesn't need such a huge army because it's investing so heavily in naval forces and air forces and all the rest of it who are doing a lot of those yards so you know, it's a, it's a very practical and sensible way of going about things. But of course, no one knows quite what the reality is going to be until it happens. You know, this is a problem with, with weaponry. You don't know until it's tested in battle how it's going to be used. You don't realize how strong the bombers are. You know, the Americans have come up with this idea of the flying fortress of B-17, which is the idea is that you would fly, you know, in in um, you know huge formations, effectively like a like a shipping convoy where there's sort of safety in numbers, where you're all mutually supporting one another, you know, incredibly heavily armed bombers. Um, which will then be impregnable because they'll be flying as a mass and, you know, all that firepower, you know, no fighter, German fighter plane would be able to get, sort of be able to penetrate. But it doesn't work out that way. And so suddenly they're a bit caught short. And so with bombing, the bomber war, there's this massive evolution. And of course, you know, the Luftwaffe doesn't succeed remotely in the summer of 1940, nor does it in the autumn and winter of 1940-41 um, with the Blitz. So, you know, bombers do get through, but 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 not in a decisive way. And so there's an evolution, and the evolution is a realization from the Allied perspective that that if you're going to be really effective as bombers, you just need vast, vast fleets. Now there are brief moments in the war where actually a huge amount can be achieved by not very many bombers, such as the Dams raid, for example, in May 1943, where 19 Lancaster bombers, specially adapted Lancaster bombers, managed to get through and 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 cause untold destruction you know as a as a proportion of the force that they are in terms of size and obviously the the, the apogee of of the bomber war is is comes in august 1945 with the two atomic bombs on japan you know that's one plane one bomb you know and that's uh, and and the world has never looked back the end of you know it's the end of the world uh, end of the road for kind of mass bomber formations and stuff so you have this incredible evolution but I, I think for a lot of people, people assume that the kind of bomber war just emerges fully formed somewhere in, I don't know, 1942 or something, or 43, with lots of Lancasters sort of pulverizing and B-17s pulverizing German cities. But of course, it wasn't like that. It, it, it's a constant evolution and it's a constant sort of step forward, two steps back, and then three steps forward and one step back and, and so on as a, as, a, as a battle kind of that air battle sort of plays out and of course you know it's not just over the strategic air campaign of 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 uh over germany you know the sort of bombing is 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 part of the currency of the allied way of war throughout the war um and both in the pacific war of course and the, and the war in southeast asia and and also of course in the mediterranean and, and and all the rest of it but one of the things that i mean i mean one of the things i've been really trying to do in the in this book is is show that you know in in its sort of very limited way is show that 
there are three levels of war. And, and I think, you know, generally the narrative of the Second World War has been told only from two levels. So the three levels are the strategic, operational and tactical. And what I mean by that is strategic is obviously your overall aims. That's what you're trying to trying to get to, you know, whether it be invade Britain in 1940 or get to Berlin or, you know, knock Japan out of the war, whatever. That's your strategy. Your tactical level is is the kind of cold face of war. This is the actual fighting bit. So that's your, your, your Sherman tank crew, your kind of battles on the ground. It's, you know your single bomber going over whatever and then you've got the operational level which is joins the strategic to the opera to the tactical it's it's the nuts and bolts of war it's how you fight your war it's it's logistics it's economics it's shipping it's supplies it's all that kind of stuff and and it's and it's the emphasis on on, on how you want to fight and you know so russia and uh so soviet union and 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 germany for example they're very boot heavy ground heavy lots of mass divisions of infantry you know that's how they're fighting their war with lots of close air support etc you know what the allies are the western allies for example are fighting a war which is you know air land and sea huge amount of emphasis on on machinery and modernity and mechanization to kind of limit so you don't have to have 300 in infantry divisions you know you only have to have 50 or whatever so it's a completely different approach and but that's that operational level and much of the narrative of the Second World War has been told only from the strategic and the tactical. So we have lots and lots about, you know, what Eisenhower's thinking or Montgomery or Rommel or whatever, or Hitler. Um, and you have lots of what it's like being in a foxhole or being in a tank or, or or a bomber crew. But you don't have that kind of, okay, but how does this all fit together? And how does this fit into kind of wider plans? And and, and why is it, why is, why are the allies getting stuck in, in kind of, you know, being stodgy in Sicily or Italy or whatever it might be? Or why are they taking such a long time in Normandy? And that operational level explains that. And I think once you reinsert the operational level back into the narrative, uh, it becomes much more clearer what on, earth, what on earth is going on in the Second World War. And actually, it makes the Allies look a, a whole lot better, I think, and the, and the Germans a whole lot, and, and the Axis forces a whole lot worse, because you see how they constantly mismanage the meagre resources they do have, whether it be Imperial Japan or whether it be Nazi Germany or Italy or whatever. Yeah, it's really well exemplified by the Luftwaffe because one assumes that the Luftwaffe, they're all in these wonderful ME-109s and that's, you know, that's the effective part of the, the Luftwaffe. But as I was reading in the in in the section on the bomber war, it's just they were completely out fought by the RAF and the US Air Force as well, weren't they? Completely, yeah. I mean, the, the, the big problems they had was as the war progressed, the, the Allies had much greater means of training um, young pilots because they had large overseas possessions in in South Africa and uh, what is now Zimbabwe and Canada and North and, and the United States where it's sunny and all year round which means you can process more people because you're not hindered by by poor weather conditions and also no one's fighting a war there so you haven't got you know air raids coming in the middle of it or you know infrastructure being hit or, or whatever all of which is impacting on the Germans for example the second thing is is that that compared to the Germans and and the Japanese, uh, particularly all the Axis forces, I should say, the Allies are you know dripping in fuel. I mean they they've just got so much because the the world's largest oil producers in 1940s are Venezuela and the United States by a country margin, and you know that's on the right side of the Atlantic and they've got plenty of it. Whereas the only real source of fuel for the Germans comes from Proesti in, in Romania and it's tiny, tiny, tiny oil field compared to you know, the oil fields of Texas, for example. So, you know, that's a that's a massive problem as well. So they haven't got enough fuel, they haven't got enough, they haven't got ability to train enough people quickly. So 
the net result of that is that your training gets cut. So the start of the war, you know, a fighter pilot, whether it be in the RAF or whether it be in the Luftwaffe, for example, or indeed the Regia Aeronautica, the, the uh, uh, Italian Air Force would probably have about 150 to 170 hours in their logbook before they're flung into battle. But by the middle of the war, by 1943, for example, uh, an RAF pilot would not be sent to a frontline squadron unless he had about 350 hours in his logbook. But by that time, a German fighter pilot would be lucky if he had 90 to 100 hours. So German training has gone down. British training has gone up. American training has always been ex exceptionally good. Uh, it's the same with the Japanese. You know, the Japanese fighter pilots, you know, in 1937, when they start taking the war to, to China, they've got 500 hours in their logbooks before they start. You know, by the time they're getting to 1943, you know, you're lucky if you've got 100. So it's exactly the same thing. You know, so the, the quality of the training of the pilots is getting worse and worse as the, as the quality of the pilots is getting better and better in the Allies. And so it's a complete mismatch. And inevitably, you've still got some diehard veterans who are really, really good um, in the in the German Air Force and Japanese Air Force. But but by process of elimination, by process of attrition and by the virtue of the fact that the Germans always kind of and Japanese always fly their men um, uh, a lot harder than the Allies do theirs because of a shortage of numbers, you know, necessity. Um, they're going to start getting attrited as well. And that's exactly what happened. So the numbers of veterans that are still alive in kind of, you know, beginning of 1944 in the Luftwaffe or the, you know, the Imperial Naval Air Force or the uh, Japanese Imperial Army Air Force is, is, is very, very small. So, of course, it becomes a, a, a total mismatch. And, you know, that's it's just that's all part of the evolution of the air war, really. There's an image of Coventry Cathedral being destroyed yeah and then and then you deal with dresden and and obviously and hamburg and so we we see huge numbers of civilian casualties and i know this book is also aimed at um probably younger generation and well, i would say nine to 99 i've been loving it and i'm definitely good, good man uh but it is I just think if the younger generation is reading it, just seeing these cities being destroyed that, you know, people will visit today for pleasure. Yeah. And and so I just wondered, you do deal with it in the, in the book. I wondered how much we can justify that war, particularly uh, that, that, that bomber war, particularly when we talk about Dresden and Hamburg. Well, I always think, I, I think as a child, you know, you want to be challenged and you want to have grey areas. I think it's very boring history when it's black and white. And, you know, I, I think it, where, where there's some sort of moral ambiguity, I think that that's quite helpful because, you know, it goes back to sort of studying the English Civil War, for example, you know, would you have been a parliamentarian or a, or a, or a, or a, or a royalist? Would you have been a roundhead or a cavalier? I mean, these, these are enduring questions which are very, very difficult to answer because there's no right or wrong answer. You know, both, both sides had their kind of pluses and minuses. I mean, my own view is, is that, that, you know, the, the the job of a nation is to, is to look after its own people, primarily. Obviously, you know, you want to be internationally humanitarian as far as you possibly can. But, you know, it was the Axis forces that started the war. And the Allies have always been incredibly clear that the moment that the Axis surrender and give up, the bombing will stop. You, you can only do what you can do with weapons you can do. And, and the alternative to that is creating vast divisions of infantry which then get slaughtered and you have a repeat of 1914-18 so you you know this is an age of total war uh, you know as it was 
know, as, as the Hundred Years' War was, as the Thirty Years' War was, you know, when you have very violent wars, which involve multiple nations, lots of civilians get killed. It's just, it's just, it, it's as certain as night following day. You see this in Ukraine and Russia at the moment. You know, the number of civilians being killed and, and, and maimed and wounded and lost homes and stuff in the Ukrainian war is, is, you know, proportionally the same as it was in the Second World War. And it's all very well coming, you know, coming on the moral high ground. But 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 what's the alternative? I, I mean, I'd I'd love to know what those who say we shouldn't have been bombing German cities would suggest as an alternative, because I certainly can't think of one. And you, you know, the German people could could rise up. They could you know could overthrow the Nazis. They could they could you know Hitler could could throw in the towel. I mean, the interesting thing about the Second World War is, is generally speaking. You know, sides in wars give up because they're not going to win and they've run out of money. Now, if you if you look at that, is is that's a basis for, you know, let's say the Germans being defeated in November 1918 in the First World War, for example, they've run out of money and they're not going to win. You could apply that to Germany, Nazi Germany, and I would say, you know, November 1941. You know, the Barbarossa has failed. They haven't taken Moscow. They're, they're in too deep. Uh, there's no realistic means of them winning i would say at that point and they've already run out of money and 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 slaughtered the best of their manpower so by that judgment you would expect them to kind of throw in the town of course they don't and and even in 1943 when they've lost at stalingrad they've lost at at, at, at kursk in july 1943 um they've lost the whole of north africa having pumped vast amounts of material and and, and ships and aircraft and tanks and everything else into Tunisia they've lost that as well Sicily's invaded Mussolini's been overthrown they're still fighting I mean it, you know you can you can put your money on wonder weapons but but it just ain't gonna work I mean so so that you can see also that that there's a sort of mounting frustration you know the, the real total kind of destruction of cities you know we're talking about some sort of Dortmund um or or obviously Dresden, um, Würzburg, Fortsheim, all these places which are completely kind of wiped from the face of the earth, effectively, in the early part of 1945, there's a sort of visceral anger and frustration from the Allied perspective because they've still got to deal with Japan and no one's thinking that there's going to be an atomic bomb at this point. They're thinking they're going to have to invade the Japanese home islands. And the closer the Allies have got to Japan, the harder the Japanese seem to fight. So no one's expecting that to be easy. And there's this sort of absolute anger that the, the the germans are still fighting it's like just just stop and then we can stop this horror we can stop destroying your cities and everyone can get on with life uh, and yet they don't so you know i you know i I'm, I'm very happy for people to disagree with me and you know and that's absolutely fine but but i think there's a whole there's a knee-jerk reaction to, to area bombing and to, to mass bombing, which is one of abhorrence and disgust, and you don't like the idea of destroying cities. But you need to also stay, take a step back and just think, okay, so what's the alternative? What's your what's the what's the other option? Because I can promise you this: that there wouldn't be much left of these cities if they were had to fight over free land on a land battle either. Now, yeah, you know, obviously that means that lots of cities aren't going to be destroyed because there isn't going to be fighting there. But anyone in the way of this kind of typhoon of steel, which is kind of running its way, and you've only got to look at look at Italy, where entire cities are just pulverized and towns pulverized, you know, more from artillery than bombers. That that you can realize what the alternative is. I mean, the bottom line is America, Britain, you know, the Soviet Union, they are going to put the well-being of their own people 
above those of other states who are fighting actively against them and trying to destroy them, whether they be civilians or whether they be servicemen. And also, at the end of the day, there's not much difference between a conscripted serviceman and a civilian who's not been conscripted, because most of the people in that population are working towards the war effort in exactly the same way as a, as a, as an untrained soldier is, clutching his rifle and marching you know, forward into battle. They're all innocents. They're all kind of lambs to the slaughter in exactly the same way. People who criticise the, the the bombing also don't put themselves in the shoes of the, you know those in senior command in the air force at the time. No, and and it wasn't as if there was precision bomb, bombing like we see in the Iraq. Well, there is there yeah. is, but by the end of the war, there largely is precision bombing, and 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 it becomes more precise. But but also there's just you know, but precision bombing is difficult and. You know, what they are doing at the end of the war is they are just laying waste to large cities, you know, quite deliberately because they just want the whole thing over and done with. And they think this is a better way of doing it than, than you know, the violence of, of the ground battles in Northwest Europe, for example, you know, where you know, the Allies are using losing gargantuan numbers of troops in March and April 1945. You know, the whole point is to, is to kind of limit that, which inevitably it does. You know, one of the reasons that the Germans finally implode in May 1945 is because the Reichsbahn, the German railway system, which is very much the glue that keeps the whole show on the road, is finally kind of destroyed beyond any kind of capability. It's completely destroyed in February 1945. And, and so, you know, there on in, they just can no longer function. But the reason that that no longer works is because it's been bombed. You know, the right one has been bombed into destruction. Every marshalling yard, every city, you know, wherever you have a city, you have railway lines. Whereas the railway lines, there's, there's some marshalling yards and and a, and, a, and, and you know and, and and railway stations and and so on. There's a hub, which is a very good excuse for destroying, you know, the centre of the town because that's where the railway is. So you know, it does work. There's absolutely no question about it. Um, it's just. It's not the decisive weapon, but it's a definitely a, a major contribution to the overall Allied victory. I'd say. Right. Well, that's been it's been a fantastic chat, James. Oh, um, pleasure. Thank we, you for having me. We've on. kind of raced from Dunkirk all the way to 1945, quite yeah. quite effectively. Yeah, and inevitably we've missed out a lot, but you know that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. There are a few other things that that go on, but they're all covered in in the book, obviously. So listeners. Yep. Um, I'd encourage them to to go. It's, it's wonderful stuff. It really is. I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Italy, but um, uh, I because I know you're writing about Italy at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I've just um, yeah, I'm just sort of finishing up on a book book at the moment, so I'm just doing copy edits at the moment. So is yeah. that Casino or Anzio or all those? <laughs> well, no, Can that's going to be the next one actually. I'm I'm doing two in a row, which is so the first bit is just 1943 in Italy, which is a is a sorry tale if ever there was one. But um, my my grandfather was um, in 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 Italy. Yeah, amazing. Um, and and was, I think he he led an assault on the uh, at Anzio. Wow. And then I went to Casino um, with my with my uh, father and uncle and reading in the book about Casino. I mean, it's it's tragic about the monastery being destroyed and yeah, awful. Just the whole uh, having been to the war grave there as well. Yeah. Yeah, I know, it's horrendous. The numbers of... Anzio was very grim. Mm. Yeah. Very um, grim. But James, thanks for your time. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. It's really good of you. Thank you very much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that. Film Club is out on Tuesday, and then we have the Napoleonic Wars, Royal Nazis, The Troubles, The Battle of Waterloo, and much, much more. In the meantime, thank you, 
and good night. <laughs>